This is a Ward Scott Files advisory. The Ward Scott Files podcast may contain material not suited for people who are easily offended. Trust us on this. This show contains adult information and opinions. Please protect small children, sensitive pets, fragile houseplants, and liberal relatives. Thank you. Warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Oh, good morning, good morning. Here we are in Coach Hogg's locker room this morning inside the, of course, the Warthog Command Center inside the Melton Law Studio. Melton Law, as you know, with 50 years of experience, is the only official law firm partner of the Gators who uh, won't back down. Well, we'll talk about that in a minute. And crime prevention protects us uh, 365, 24-7, cpss.net. Check out, of course, the mugshots. And all of our sponsors and all of our donors, thank you very much. Good morning to you early morning students. I mean, Jody Davis is here early. My golly, you know, the guy usually drifts into class late, um, pays attention a little bit now and then. I'm just ragging on him a little bit. Um, plantation mark got rain an inch and a half. Um, a garden is a red mud mess. Well, welcome to nature, as Mark knows. Well, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a story we got to talk about, and it's a story of disappointment. There's no other way to uh, tell this, tell this tale. Uh, if you are just a, a passing follower of Gator football, well, Maybe you can heat your coffee up for a moment, or if you're in the back of the class, uh, look out the window or something. But around here, it's a religion, and it's an obsession, and it's costly, and it's um, devoted worshipers of this religion, if you will. And curiously, after the defeat Saturday, Facebook was quiet, relatively quiet. There was no response. I took that to be gloom and doom, which it really is. When you do for the Gator program what has been done here, an $85 million hot tub extravaganza is basically what it is. Um, and then you don't somehow reciprocate forever in a day. Every time you get a chance, there's, of course, suspicion about whether Decisions have been made properly. Personnel have been acquired. Um, this is the way to go. And this has been the eternal conversation since I got here and started watching football under Coach Ray Graves. Coach Graves had a reputation of being a 7-3 and three coach and um, couldn't escape that until Steve Spurrier came along and actually put us on national television in the big bowls, you sh we could usually get over to the Gator Bowl, but we almost never could get to the Sugar Bowl or the Orange Bowl. And that's where Steve took us, when we get, uh, Coach Graves. Uh, and then, of course, uh, we went through uh, some musical chairs for a while. But I got to tell you that I was in the coaching world when we brought in the Super Softs and we brought in the best players in the state of Florida. And that was Alvarez and Reeves and that crowd. And there probably has never been at the University of Florida a pro quarterback talent like John Reeves, who was the first pick by the Philadelphia Eagles, if my memory served me properly, came out of Tampa high school area. And the thing that he had that we really, you know, you have to look high and low for this. He had what we call in quarterback terminology, the high release. It's, uh, it's similar to what we do in serving in tennis. In serving in tennis, you want to toss that ball as high as you can, not too high, but high enough where you have to what we call reach and go up for it. And when you reach and go up for it, that serving arm is fully extended and you hit that ball at its apex and then you can deliver these 130, 140 mile an hour serves. A low ball toss, or if the ball toss goes off, as it does with Sabalenka in the women's side, then the, the game goes off. John Reeves had the high release. He could throw that ball from the top extended arm, 
which, of course, got it over the tall defensive linemen, the rushing people, and he could stand in that pocket and fling that thing the length of the field. Well, i got to tell you, we don't have a quarterback who does that. I don't know if he'll ever do it. I have watched him, and he is throwing darts, and he's throwing balls that are too hard for his receivers to catch. Every once in a while, it works. But there's no difference in his serving, if you will. A good server has several serves. You have the high-speed serve. You have the kick serve. You have a lot of slices and speeds that you can do, and you use them for appropriate situations. That's not the case with Richardson. He only has one speed. And if it goes off, it all goes off. That's the way it is with Sabalenka. She has a tremendous serve in the female side. When it goes off, she goes off. And she can be leading the match, and you think it's comfortable win for her here out. And all of a sudden, the serve goes awry, and then she ends up losing. I watched Richardson now very carefully a couple of times. He does not have the high release. He does not have the ability, evidently so far, to read and change the pace of the ball. And he's just very much of the mindset, throw it in there as hard as you can throw it and let the chips fall where they may. I don't know if Florida has a quote-unquote quarterback coach who has played quarterback. Of course, we've got one who is now retired. But uh, he didn't have the high release either, but he had the ability to throw the ball with pinpoint accuracy and read the defenses very well. So Reeves is the guy who came here with a big, strong, high-release arm, and you know he could sling it the length of the field. Probably the best pro prospect quarterback we ever had here. And and so is Richardson that? No, Richardson's not that. Can he be taught that? I don't know. I don't know. It's going to have to happen, or it's going to be a very one-dimensional offense because it all revolves around him. And apparently, there's nobody to come in and relieve him. Uh, Some people who have watched Steve coach knows that Steve, if he had a quarterback that was floundering, even though he was a you know the first the starter, he would pull him in the third quarter and try something else. Um, We can't say that that would have worked here. But we do know it didn't happen here. It's all just speculation as to whether or not a Steve Spurrier-type coach would have pulled a Richardson-type quarterback and put in someone else, at least for the defense, the Kentucky defense, to have another look. Because there was a lot of fun made of a Kentucky player who was evidently interviewed who said in return, we're not worried about Richardson. We've been game planning him. Well, some people took issue and snickered at the word game planning, saying it wasn't grammatically correct. I happen to lack like game planning. It serves perfectly well as a verb. Uh, I game plan. I will game plan. I have game plan. And game plan is really what obviously Kentucky did. They took a look at Richardson. They saw his tendencies. They saw what I see. And they said, okay, we're only going to rush three. And we're going to drop back everybody else and jump on the routes because he's never seen this before. And we're betting he won't be able to adjust. And if he tries to run, we're going to have that covered because the outside's going to be covered. He's not going to run on the sides of us. He's going to have to come up the middle. And for a quarterback to come up the middle is a very dangerous, ill-advised thing to do because that's where you lose your quarterback. And apparently, we don't have a quarterback to lose. So the game planning by Stoops and his bunch was very well done. There doesn't seem to have been an anticipation by Napier uh, that a game plan in return to their game plan. There doesn't seem to have been a backup game plan for the Gator. Now, that proved to be disastrous because there were a couple ill-advised throws that were obviously dramatically game changers. But on the other hand, questions have come up about Florida's defense. Florida's defense is great. 
They are the real deal, okay? But you can't leave them out there forever and a day and get yanked in three yards and out, three downs and out. But they have got a defense. They have proven that. They've had goal line stands. Uh, they, they have, that was a really, really good quarterback for Kentucky, or they would have, uh, uh, they drove him nuts. They're a very good defense. But we don't have a running game to speak of, and we only got a one-dimensional uh, uh, quarterback. So I suspect there's problems ahead if, I'm going to throw this out on the table, if University of South Florida comes to the swamp and beats the Gator, oh, my golly, wash my mouth out with soap. Beats the Gator. Maybe even comes close to beating the Gator. You are going to hear chatter like you haven't heard before. So the Gators in playing South Florida have nothing to win. It's a hollow victory. It's not an SEC game. And everything to lose. And hopefully, South Florida doesn't have the ability to game plan Although if they got any sense, they will look at the defenses the, uh, that Kentucky ran and they'll find out what Richardson can't do. And that is loft the ball, as my good buddy Jack Phillips says, um, take something off it. Um, obviously, he can run, but they ain't going to let him run because they know he's dangerous on that. He didn't run in the Kentucky. Couldn't run. Shouldn't have run. So... That's my little reportage on the Gator. Right now, things are not good. Oh, you can hear spins. Oh, there's all sorts of rational rationales. Well, you know, they're young. And well, you know, it's a process. It ain't much of a process, my friends. Or you're out of here. It ain't going to be a four or five year process. I got news for you, friends. It ain't going to be that. It's going to be get this thing fixed. And get it fixed. I don't think they'll have a chance against a Georgia or somebody like that. Alabama, although Alabama should have lost. They had a very dirty hit on a quarterback. And they didn't throw that game, guy out of the game for it. They injured the quarterback for Texas. He might be out for the season by falling on him deliberately with all the body weight. That guy was hurting him. Texas would have beaten Alabama. Alabama pulled it out again, barely. Uh, so that was the way that went. So even as as kind of goofy as Alabama behaved during that game, Gator won't touch them. So what is the time frame for the Gator football team? Well, we're going to get into perhaps the influence that the transfer portal is going to have on this in a moment. I'm going to talk a little bit about that because we have a football frenzy, transfer frenzy that's going on right now with a high roster turnover. I don't know how many players on the Gators are brand new, uh, never been here, came in through the portal. Somebody told me, and I'm not ready to report that as fact, uh, that there's as many as 40. I don't, that sounds awfully high to me. But uh, all over the leagues now, the quarterback uh, from Southern California is a transfer from Oklahoma. He has a running back who transferred from Oregon. Uh, there's a wideout from Memphis, uh, with just the University of Southern California, who is coming into the SEC, by the way. There are 26 new players uh, brought in from other schools, and uh, they lost 19 players to transfers. This is all out by Lane Higgins keeping this uh, data for us. Um, the high roster turnover uh, is a phenomenon. You have to factor into all this um, and see how it goes. The... Uh, um, I guess USC is transferring the Big Ten. I'm sorry. Pac-12 and USC is going to transfer the Big Ten. Uh, it has been among the most uh, uh, active in the transfer mar uh, mar uh, market. The ACC has been the least active. And now what coaches are doing, uh, they're not plotting three years ahead with the recruiting. They're actually looking practically on a game-to-game -game basis on a year-to-year -year basis as to what they need, what they can get, uh, because um, this, is, this is the way it is used now. The players know it. 
they're able to put their name if they're not happy where they are. And let's hope we don't build that kind of story here at Florida because they can jump in the transfer portal and uh, go somewhere where they're not happy. I don't need to ask, 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 uh, ask, uh, ask the coaches. Um, the most competitive market is for wide receivers and, of course, big linemen. There's a big, huge need for them. We've got pretty good linemen. Uh, I think we're going to be okay if we can keep that. Um, I'm disappointed, though, in that uh, Richardson doesn't stay in the pocket. They, I guess they can make a pocket for him. John Reeves stayed in that pocket. Now, the other ththing is get rid of the ball, one, two, three. You got to get rid of the ball on the count of three or you are opening up for all kinds of problems. Apparently, that hasn't been processed is the big word they like to use in Florida now. He hasn't processed that yet. Uh, one, two, three, get it out of there. So uh, uh, coaching changes also enter into this. Nebraska just fired the coach who had been extremely successful at Central Florida, went out there, and, and uh, there you go. He's gone. So um, the, uh, there are schools that don't take advantage of the transfer portal much. Clemson is the big one that doesn't. Uh, Ohio State and Alabama have to very little. So uh, their programs are solid. So factor in also that the college football playoff is going to expand to 12 teams uh, no later than the 2026 football season. And so uh, this is going to add more games, bring in more money. You're going to see more pressure on these schools to raise more money through their boosters. And it's all just going to be a crapshoot. Um, everybody pretty much understands that things are going to be chaotic. Uh, the formats are going to create a lot of pressure and exposure and a lot of financial return. If you can get the magic formula right, uh, it is going to be more cash into the college football world, uh, television deals, uh, big name members to the conferences moving around the uh, whole thing right now is in chaos. One of the things you want to do is settle down and create a program where your players don't want to jump ship. Uh, that remains to be seen. I'm probably the only guy who's talking this way to you uh, about uh, the Gators, but that remains to be seen because if they'll stay or if they'll go because if things don't pan out, all the business, we always hear this conversation. Every coach does it. Oh, we're a family and uh, we got this and we got that. Uh, it's it's really just it's coach talk. Coaches will say anything they need to say to that is uh, the thing to say at the time. Um, they're very good at that. They should be good at it. They don't keep their job. They don't. Whatever jingle uh, jingle works. Go to, go ahead and use it. And because it's a it can it's a fad. It can disappear pretty quickly if you're not careful. Um, the the um, the so you got to got to have the little jingles down. One of the things, though, that stays pretty steady in this, and that is data. And I think to the extent that these coaches uh, can't analyze data, their role model right now for that is the Los Angeles Rams. And what the Rams have been using data for, according to Andrew Beaton, is to uh, sniff out the potential for injuries before they occur. So one of the greatest challenges in athletics is to know how much rest to take and when to take it because the rest allows you to come back refreshed and stronger. I've seen coaches drive their players into the ground because they say, well, they weren't tough enough, therefore more punishment will make them tougher. And these guys have been obsessive, compulsive about this, and I've seen them actually run the team into a defeat mode. Um, the Rams don't do that. They have decided we're not going to do that. We're going to listen to the players. We're going to believe them when they say, well, today I don't feel up to snuff. But they're going to be able to analyze that through all sorts of data. They keep on uh, their players to know the, dip, the, the, the degree to which they're fatigued and how they can objectively confirm it has become a real uh, art in the world of athletic training. And this is somebody who gets this right is going to have the magic formula because if you can figure that out, when a guy enters the training room, 
uh, what he's really entering it for and how to maximize his visit there is, is really going to be special because the exercise that this data is teaching the coaches is that you're trying to reduce injuries. You can't eliminate them because they're freak things that happen, but you try to predict the tendencies and create an environment that decreases the opportunity for injury rather than increase it. And you do that throughout the culture of your team. So um, we haven't had many injuries on the field there. That's pretty fortunate. Should Richardson get uh, injured, you can pretty much bet that the Gators are going to be in an entirely uh, different uh, situation. So uh, uh, that's my analysis of the Gator team. It's uh, all bets are off right now. We'll see how they do. Um, we have the transfer frenzy and we have the football uh, playoff. In the tennis world, there's a little known note here that I want to uh, put your put in your a bug in your ear. Uh, unless you've been away, you know that the U.S. Open just finished, and we have the youngest U.S. Open winner maybe since Nadal. He may be even younger than Nadal was when he won. He's only 19 years old, and he's now, by virtue of his victory yesterday, number one in the world. And the guy he beat, Casper Rudd, is uh, I want you to I want you to know uh, this little detail, and perhaps you don't. Realize it. Casper Rudd uh, lost, of course, four sets to Carlos uh, Alcaraz. But Casper Rudd was beaten by the University of Florida's Gator, Ben Shelton, who shortly thereafter turned pro. Ben Shelton beat Casper Rudd in a Cincinnati Open 6-3-6-3 when Rudd was ranked number five in the world. And now Rudd is ranked number two. So Carlos is ranked number one, and Casper is number two. Carlos is 19, and Casper is 21. That's how good Ben Shelton is. Now, Ben Shelton played both the singles and the doubles in the U.S. Open. He's now gone pro, and he lost in five sets to Borges from Portugal, another young man, and the scores were awesomely close. You know, uh, 6-7, 6-3, 6-7, 7-6, 3-6. Six, six, six. Uh, I suspect maybe Ben got tired toward the end. But, man, that is a tremendous showing. And he beat uh, the, uh, the uh, in Cincinnati Open, Ben Shelton beat the guy who came in second in the U.S. Open and is second in the world. That's quite an accomplishment. I want you to realize that's what the University of Florida Tennis Program is right now. In Coach Hogg's locker room, um, I want to summarize by saying it's uh, it's fun to use this part of the program for this. I think it's uh, interesting having been in the coaching world, the athletic world, and uh, all the above. As you know, uh, I, I, uh, I I can I'm not really beholden to anybody. I can, uh, you know, I'm not sponsored by the jock world. I'm not, um, you know, some beer guy that, you know, I'm just out here. I'm, I'm really kind of pure. I mean, only the devoted sponsor me and only the devoted donate to me. Otherwise, we got fence sitters and people who check in, but they don't, they don't, they don't do anything other than freeload, which is fine. That's okay. But I want to take my hat off to the sponsors and the donors and, Remind you that I'm really not beholden to anybody. Uh, I'm not beholden to a radio station owner or anything like that. So this is the way I see it. I see that the uh, football world is in, as all college athletes, uh, athletes are right now in kind of a turmoil. And it will be for quite some time. The Gators are in particular turmoil. And it's been exposed. Their weaknesses have been exposed in this game. Um, and let's hope they keep their defense intact and keep them off the field. So um, the other thing I want to talk with you briefly before we go on the uh, break, and then I'll come back after the break and show you a video production. I'll probably get to this after the break and maybe before. So um, I'll let you know the production's listening to me. Um, we have analyzed the local uh, voter situation again. I want you to know that this whole story about Voter eligibility. You know, I can't say the other word. I have to say voter babe. 
started with the Ward Scott Files and started with yours truly here locally by going to the people that I know and networking with them and saying, you need to take a look at this story. We were the first to run the story. We are now being picked up and interviewed by, uh, of course, our data guy is ABC News calling him this morning. Uh, we've had uh, a lot of attention now. The governor's on to it. The governor understands what we're doing. Um, and we've taken a look uh, at the voter rolls. Our data guys have, and that's yeah, Mark. And uh, we've seen that um, the data purging of the rolls now, they've purged 6.1% of the registered voters, quote unquote, uh, from uh, the voter rolls. These were people who voted in the general in 2020 up to the 2022 primary. So purged from those rolls has been 6.1%. Previously in 2018 to 2020, the purging was 1.8%. So that's about five times as many people purged from the voter rolls. Well, 3.5 times higher, Um, uh, 3.5 times higher than the previous purging. It's um, the, 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 the voter rolls, therefore, have been bloated locally here by almost 12,000 voters. Now, if you go back and examine some of these elections, that's pretty close in some of them, uh, quite close. So the uh, correlation of the bloated voter rolls, are you ready for this? This should not surprise you, correlates with Zuckerbucks, Okay. Those sucker, those Zucker bucks were spent to expand voters without accountability. Now, this is the rub. This is why they say, oh, there's no voter B. Oh, really? Let's go take a look at Zucker bucks. Let's go take a look at what Zucker bucks were used for. Zucker bucks were used for absentee ballots. Absentee ballots had no accountability. There were these drop boxes, this, all these loopholes, which DeSantis has closed. Okay? Think about it. What did the Zuckerbucks do? They pinpointed those areas, and certainly Alachua County being Democrat was one of them. $700,000 coming into Kim Barton's coffer for her to use at her discretion. Okay, and we got the spreadsheet on that. and We know how it was used. And we know there one of her answers was, do do you know where the no, you you don't know. Once you proliferate absentee ballots, there's no accountability. And we've been working like crazy to expose that. And one of the obvious places where the armor has a crack in it is with sex offenders. And you've just begun to see. You've just begun to see this happen uh, and statewide. In a minute, I guess we'll do it before the break production. So in a second, let's get ready to run. Uh, Governor DeSantis talking about this at a, a press conference. Uh, can we run that now, production? Okay, we're going to run that. Here's this DeSantis talking about this at a press conference. Well, right. I mean, I think that clearly those were illegally cast votes. I don't think there's any question about that. In the state of Florida, convicted sex offenders are not eligible to vote. And people convicted of homicide are not eligible to vote. So that's just the reality. So those were, I think everyone agrees, those were 20 votes 
cast in 2020 that were illegally cast votes. And that we did do a con, the voters of Florida approved a constitutional amendment in uh, 2018 saying if you're felon, you can have your rights restored automatically to vote, but not for those two categories. And so that was obviously the law. Everybody knew that. So the question is, if you have like a third party group or someone telling somebody, yeah, you know, you're a convicted rapist, but you can vote, that obviously is false. And that may expose some of those groups to liability because clearly if you're involved in some type of voter mobilization, you know what the law is or not what the law is. And if you're doing that, you're making a conscious decision to evade the law. And here's the thing. It's like, you know, some of these groups, you wonder where their values are. I mean, you're relying on convicted rapists to get what you want at the polls. No, thank you on that one. I mean, I think that that's wrong. So uh, our view is, is we want all voters who are lawful to vote to be able to vote. Uh, but if someone votes illegally, they could have canceled your vote out. How do you how do you feel about that? They could cancel out the vote of some World War II veteran who fought, you know, to, to preserve our freedoms. And so it is important that we're upholding the law. And I think this will help show people and disabuse them of maybe any uh, lack of clarity that they have about what the rules are in Florida and what the rules are not. Javier. All right, all right. Uh, we wanted to show that to you because um, it really sums it all up, does it not? And uh, Governor DeSantis has heard what we found and has now expanded upon it and has created an election integrity committee. And we don't know where this is going to end. We, you know, once we get the full resources of the state involved and we start looking at these voter rolls and we start looking at who voted, um, you know, up till now, the skeptics have been telling us as they interview us, Oh, yeah, but it does make a statistical difference. You don't know that. You don't know that. If you knew that, you would have known about these already. You don't know how many are out there. And, and, uh, and here's the deal. If you can't find these obvious uh, violations, how many other violations can you not find? Um, how, what makes you think you've got anything known as election integrity when you can't even find these? And these are right there under your nose. So the governor has picked up on this, and the governor had a very good answer. Do you want the rapist and the convicted murderer vote to cancel yours, the person who lives the good life? This is more of the whole kind of scenario going on in this political world, which I've been covering. The Democrats seem to be perfectly comfortable with lawlessness, violate the Constitution, they misread it, they keep hollering, oh my golly, we had a right to abortion. Not in the Constitution, you didn't. They never bring that up. They never bring that up. So I thought I'd share that with you, and uh, we come back a little bit. We'll talk about how this is playing out some over the national uh, scene after we do the weather. So thanks, production, for a smooth delivery of that. We'll be right back on the Ward Scott Files. Although the owner of Lewis Oil Company maintains she is 29, Lewis Oil turns 60 years old in June. Chevron would like to recognize the North Florida second-generation family-owned business, celebrating its growth and staying power. Lewis Oil Company maintains significant on-hand supplies, strategically located fuel depots, a delivery fleet, on-site service, fuel card locks, and convenience stores. Lewis Oil Company understands its responsibility in the local economy by providing service and delivery on demand and in crisis. As a first responder for 18 Florida counties and the southeast from Texas to Virginia, we are proud of this rare accomplishment. Lewis Oil delivers. This is Ward Scott, and I want to thank all our sponsors who keep the show going and pay the bills. The Ward Scott Files premium sponsors are Crime Prevention Security Systems, large enough to serve you, small enough to care. Melvin Law, the only official injury partner of the Florida Gators. The Ward Scott Files Gold sponsors are Maurice T. McDaniel, Lewis Oil Company, Shoot GTR, On the Spot Dry Cleaners, RR Construction, and Style Cuts. If you are interested in promoting your business on the show, you can visit our website, www.wardscottfiles.com. And click on the Advertise Here banner on the right side of the page or call my friend Freddie 
at 352-284-3733. Again, thank you to all the great businesses that support the Ward Scott Files. And remember, if you like the show, thank our sponsors and support the businesses that support us. What you just said is one of the most insanely idiotic things I have ever heard. Everyone in this room is now dumber for having listened to it. May God have mercy on your soul. Or that very much surprises me that you've never been tased. You can't handle the truth! All bees poop. A warthog. He's going to come up the steps. Here he comes. Oh my goodness, and he's huge. Hello, boy. I wonder if we can pet him. Hi, boy. Can we touch him? No, don't. Help me! Help! Help! Now for the weather brought to you by Lewis Oil. Welcome back to Ward Scott Files. Ward's weather here brought to you by Lewis Oil. Our good friends, Chevron Stations, uh, uh, Wendell Lewis, great, great supporter of the show. We appreciate it so much. And uh, we hope we don't go electric cars. I'm not for electric cars, but you know, who am I, huh? I'm just a lowly, humble narrator. The weather is changing, and I've begun to feel it. And here's how we pay attention to it when we grow grass for cattle. We're going down to 70 degrees at night now. And at night is when grass grows. And when we go below 70, we'll begin to think about November. And probably by November, the end of November, we'll be hauling hay because it'll be cold enough at night. Uh, that will not be growing grass. And we'll probably haul hay all the way into March at least. Okay. And this is, this is some of the cost that goes into uh, raising animals that you all probably take it granted for when you go to um, the, your local restaurant and whatnot. But there's a whole economy behind this, and the weather is an integral part of it. Um, we have to watch that temperature. The temperature is going to dip below 90 this week in our parts. It's going to, so it's going to be in the uh, low 70 to the mid uh, 80 range during the day. And that is going to make a little bit of difference if you want who goes outside and works. Of course, if you're inside, uh, that won't matter much at all to you, I suppose. But, um, and of course, the springs retain their constant temperature here. And that's one of the great beauties of this state. So uh, we've got a storm possibly rumbling out there, but so far they've been deflected by whatever forces have pushed them out. But we'll keep her. We may get through September without a storm, which would really be something. So uh, take care. And uh, it didn't rain on the Gator this weekend. So that was a blessing. And uh, some people did bring their ponchos, but they never had to pull them out. So, and the grass was in much better shape in Florida Field. It had been really soggy the week before from so much torrential rain. We still have problems with river rising. So be careful of that. And we also have a problem with some of these um, retention ponds are pretty much brimming. So, and when it rains, of course, you get to see how bad the roads are in Alachua County because they simply, all those potholes become little puddles that you ram your tires through and get to jar your, your teeth loose. So that's just your wonderful county of Alachua. That are any, are any automobile you'll always have been. Well, we've been talking about the uh, election uh, integrity, we call it here. And we have to be, I just want to cover this briefly nationwide, remind you that the Democrats were the first real election deniers. Okay. How uh, they complain, as you remember, about President George W. Bush, uh, particularly in the Democrat House members um, in Ohio, um, they voted to uh, uh, George uh, um, the House members, the, 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 despite Bush winning Ohio, they were trying to flip Ohio and make Kerry the president. There was a bunch of election denying going on in that election, and that was in 2005. Um, so they've been, they, they're, not, they're not pure as a driven snow. And there's a whole conversation about this. 
that the journal has covered. And it is quite an extensive list. The um, uh, Pelosi, who was a minority leader, uh, defended her party's election deniers back then. And uh, she uh, she uh, uh, has always been uh, talked out of both sides of her mouth. Um, the uh, the whole psychology of, of of election integrity guilt has been shifted to the Republicans for, because they want to try to use that as a technique, of course, as you know, to influence in, people in the in the uh, uh, coming uh, midterms, which are so so important to um, the future of this country. So I'll just kind of keep an eye on it and let you know that the real pressure on election accountability is coming from right here, originated, my friends, right here in Alachua County with the Ward Scott Files. We don't know how far out these ripples are going to go, um, but we know now that the nation knows and that we have a governor who's picked up the story and that hopefully this will be examined more closely in across the nation by other governors. Never probably, if you look at the original election deniers being Democrats, you probably won't see it in those states run by Democrat governors, but you'll certainly hopefully see it in states run by Republican governors. Uh, yeah, as Jack says, selective memory. So the, um, I want to cover a little bit of the story now about, and I've titled the story today of our show, uh, The Light Above Politics. Um, one of the things that is going to be very interesting to observe and the next, right now it's already happening, is, <clears throat> and he's not going to be able to because he's got a checkered life already, and that's the new king. Whether or not of England, he will be able to set an example like the queen did. Now, the problem with that is that already he's starting off behind. It is well known that he had dalliances, if you want to call them that, and that um, his first wife had dalliances. People have never really understood why the queen was not particularly sorrowful uh, come down, she come down to the fence for the morning by the public of Diana. But, uh, you know, she is the head of the Protestant church. The Queen of England is the head of the Protestant church. She's God's representative morality and stability on earth. That's the way the oaths go. If you listen to them, every single one is so help me God or under God. And that's the Protestant church. Now, Diana was out with a Muslim. That night she was killed in, in Mercedes. Now that, that, had Diana lived, that, that, that really wasn't, but don't get me wrong, Shakespeare knew about this. He knew about this problem. He wrote about an Othello. Othello was a Moor, okay? So oh, Shakespeare knew it. He knew that this was going to be a particular challenge for England to maintain a behavior fitting to inheriting the consequences of the Protestant Reformation. So the queen, this late monarch, was an example of the stability. Here's some of the things that she experienced in her life, which is remarkable. And what I'm emphasizing here is we don't have anything like that in our country. It's not set up that way. In fact, our country is set up on instability. We kick the guy out every four years. At the most eight years, we kick him out. We don't want, we were so afraid of absolute rule, absolute order, that we established absolute disorder. That's the way the England viewed it. My golly, you guys are going to be doomed to chaos forever. So I'm just showing you the two sides of the coin here. The new king is going to have to straddle that. He's going to have to, because it's, 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 she was the only one who could keep the lid on that. She saw the rise of Hitler, the Second World War, all the Cold War. 
She saw the Cuban Missile Crisis. She saw the fall of Berlin. I'm just going through a list here. She saw the invention of the Internet. And she saw the dawn of the information age and the growing of the so-called threat of climate change. She saw 16 prime ministers serve Britain from Winston Churchill to this newly chosen one. She saw just a couple of days, interestingly, before she died. And with each one of these prime ministers, she maintained a special relationship. I happened to have the opportunity to meet Margaret Thatcher. And that was really something to be of uh, that close to a prime minister of England. I stood on the steps uh, uh, talking to her in a historical part in South Carolina uh, as we stood there waiting for the rain to go in. And there she was. She was just as natural and friendly as you might be, but she was the prime minister of England. Now, the uh, uh, so she knew all of these prime ministers. Um, she also... Um, uh, uh, held relationships with a lot of world leaders, U.S., Russia, Germany, France. She met with 12 U.S. presidents at Buckingham Palace and the White House. She had a very close relationship with uh, President Eisenhower. He hosted her on her first official visit to the U.S. And she famously uh, wrote him a letter sharing her very own recipe for uh, drop scone. So she lived through the Kennedy assassination. And uh, she also, in 1989, accepted an invitation of Mikhail Gorbachev. I don't know, and nobody else could I've has, has known of a world leader with that type of moral stability and certitude uh, for a nation's uh, identity. And based upon being a servant of God and an exemplifier of the, of the virtues of the Protestant religion. So uh, she's met with many of the world's spouses. Uh, she also met with President Charles de Gaulle. And uh, she, um, uh, of course, she was a favorite of, 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 of Ronald Reagan. So this lady, what did she, what, what was it that happened in her that uh, maybe can't ever be reproduced? Uh, it was her stability, uh, was her stability on the throne uh, returned allegiance from her, her, her people. Um, in times of peril, and by golly, England had them. Hitler tried to destroy London from the air. Probably could have gotten it done had the jets been had been developed by then. Um, he was launching rockets into there. Um, the people she stayed there uh, with them. Um, she she embodied all the history and the tradition of the government and the morality of the society. Now, was she able to keep that in the lives of her children? Obviously not. And you've got Harry. You know, he is probably as far from the example she set as you can get. Um, you have the next in line um, that is closer, much closer. But um, there's so there's a dichotomy in the family. Um, it's it's uh, all about the continuity and stability and soundness. Now, for those of you who look for that in our society, you're not going to be able to find it. I don't think I don't think we have the structure set up to produce it. I don't I don't see it anywhere unless I'm wrong. You guys tell me um, the the uh, the the uh, stability of the society is is totally um, um, whip like back and forth totally. And it's such a young, such a young country, a couple hundred years old, and the jury's out. The jury's all out on how it will do. It's, it's. Uh, if you're a reader of the tea leaves in a positive way, um, but she represented the permanent over the prevalent. And what we're obsessed with now in this country is the prevalent. Whatever is fashionable, whatever is uh, in the news today, and we know the news can be manipulated. That's the lemmy-like following that rushes to that side of the boat. 
to be on that side. Um, we've got a president, Joe Biden, who should be really, shouldn't he? Shouldn't that president be this? Um, however, temporary, shouldn't we be selecting them for that kind of uh, representation? But no, we've got a president who deliberately runs down half of his, his people, half of his people, and says to his people, hey, you try to overthrow us, and we've got F-15s. You know, you got you to gotta look at it this way, too. You know, when the, the United States young guys rebelled, England accepted it. We're still friends. We're still human beings with each other. Now, the South were the Anglophiles. The South wanted to imitate the aristocratic lifestyle of England. You think the North was going to put up with that? They weren't going to put up with that. They were rebellious against England. The South endorsed England. And in fact, the South thought that England would come in on its side and embargo the North because they thought, the South, that England really, the relationship the South had with cotton in England, <clears throat> which was the oil of the day, just think of cotton as oil and you'll understand. Uh, therefore, England would have, no, England said, we're going to stay out of this. We're going to stay out. And besides, we got plenty of cotton coming out of India. We're going to stay out of it. And that really changed it. So any indication, replication of an English squire life, and the South was really a squirearchy. It was not aristocratic. It was a squirearchy. And there's a big difference. Okay. Any emblems or any embers of that lifestyle were thoroughly extinguished by the North. You could not have an Anglophile part of this country that was diametrically opposed to the industrialization of the, na of the nation. The entire nation had to be industrialized. And an entire relationship with nature had to be that which produced, mater produced material goods out of nature's resources. That was, that was, uh, so what the South argued for, well, can't we have sectionalism? Can't we have a section of the country that's devoted to agrarian principles and devoted to uh, a, a certain uh, a, a lifestyle based upon the squirearchy behavior? Because you see, we all came from the same past. So no, you can't have that. It's our way or the highway. It's our way or the highway. So in many ways, it's the same thing you got seeing going on between Russia and Ukraine. Russia says, you're not going anywhere, Ukraine. You're part of us, and we're going to come and get you back if we have to blow up and burn down every single building you got, which the North did in order to take care of the South. It actually had to burn Atlanta to the ground and then had to leave everything from Atlanta to Savannah so scorched that the squirrel, it said, couldn't even find anything to eat on a tree limb. So that's what you had to do. And then you had to come in and and and... There's some theory that had Lincoln lived, Reconstruction would have been humane, but it wasn't. It exploited the South, ravaged the South, stomped out the embers. We've never done, we never did that to Japan. We never even did it to Iraq. So you can see what is going on here with this new king. He's got to walk that line. He is going to have many, he's not going to have the generation of people that knew her, this generation of people know nothing, very little about the past, let alone the relationship of the United States to, to the European continent, except that they've been told it was based upon all this exploitation, which is a danger to the, to the stability of this particular country and threatens to actually distinguish it because the only principles we've got in that country really were modeled on the principles that came from the aristocratic life of England, with the exception that we rotate the crown. 
the Bill of Rights, all this based on the Protestant Reformation. So she is there to, or was there to protect the Protestant church and religion. And she always would be, say she prays, she prayed that God would help her uh, discharge her duties. I haven't heard Biden say anything like that and mean it if he did say it. I've never heard it. We have no spiritual authority in this country. Have you ever thought of that? We have no spiritual authority in this country. We are a secular country. The state runs things, okay? The state determines happiness. The state gives you salvation here on earth. In religion, their salvation cannot be found on earth. It's found in the afterlife, and the quality of your afterlife is based upon your good deeds on earth, which is a failed condition. The progressives think they can perfect the condition. They are hedonists, secularists. They are not spiritual people. And they are eating up the Democrat Party. And they are running down the Republican Party because the Republican Party has been identified with Christianity. And Christianity is a bad word in the secular mouth of the progressives. So the important thing about the queen, it wasn't about her. It was about the institution and its responsibility to demonstrate behavior fitting of the Protestant religion. And in her case, she darn sure came darn close to it. In the, her son's case, the, you know, the jury's out. And by golly, if he can't, then we're going to have a world of secularity. We're going to have the only, the, ironically, the only place where there's any kind of, of monarchy, if you will, and it's not really a monarch, is in these Muslim countries. And the Muslims and the Protestants have been after each other forever. You know that. That's what I say. That's why you read Othello and you read about the Moors. Um, so she really was a light above politics. We don't have a light above politics. She was a woman of faith. Uh, we don't have that. Uh, you can't tell me Kamala Harris is a moral example. You can't tell me that she is a light above politics. You can't tell me that Biden is a moral example, that he's a light above politics. I don't see it. If you all see it, please let me see it. I want to know where you're getting it from. So it's the idea of continuity that she represented. Well, the continuity exists with her son taking over. Boy, I tell you what, it's going to be a challenge. It's going to be a challenge. Because when she entered the room, Britain entered the room. He's got to come across that same way. He's got to come across that same way. And as Tim Martin pointed out, Protestant religion has already taken some issues with him. Um, I, 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 I don't know. This is going to be a real. <clears throat> you say, what has it got to do with us? It's got everything to do with us because we have always been able to count on England to be on our side. You see, the South thought the same thing, though. And England was not on her side, even though the South wanted to emulate the aristocratic style of England. So who will be on? I'm going to just play some games here with analogies, and they're kind of stressed. They don't. They're oversimplifications, obviously. But if you're a republic, if you're a Republican and you're faith oriented and you are you are subscribing to the belief that your moral examples come from God, then you're going to be alone if England abandons you. You're going to be alone. There's nowhere else in the world that would stick up for you. Nowhere. Nowhere. That's pretty scary. Thanks for listening. Warhol Command Center out.